What's up, good world? This is your host, Armand Lee, and thank you so much for once again listening to the Quarterly Report. We've got a really fun show this week. Really excited about our guest from truthaboutit.net, Troy Halliburton, a Wizards contributor for the website, will be stopping by. We're going to get into a whole bunch of topics, including John Wall's return. Also, the Kirk Cousins era in the D.C. area is finally over. However, there's still plenty of questions surrounding the quarterback and what's next for the Minnesota Vikings. So we'll touch on all those things and so much more. But first, our number one topic this first quarter. I don't know how it started, but the entire idea and concept of the clutch gene as it pertains to NBA players is the bane of my existence. I can't stand that tired and played out narrative. And I'll give you plenty of examples of why I don't like it and why I feel it's misused and how in many ways it may have ruined or partly stunted basketball's growth. But before I get to why exactly I'm just completely done and have been done with this idea and this concept of clutch, let me give you, or let me at least give you my 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 um, position okay obviously there are moments in the game with heightened pressure and it's not even necessarily a game in any part of life right in any facet of life whether you are a an accountant or a teacher or a police officer or someone who does it okay there are moments while doing your job where pressure is heightened, okay? You may be an executive and you have a last second presentation that you just have been put on your, your table. You don't have the necessary time or resources to uh, best execute or it's you've had a, a, a lesser amount of those supplies, right, or time. So you have to put something together without the normal amount of notice. There's a pressure involved. Or if you have a a large campaign, you know, there's pressure involved. If you're a student, right, you're going to spend, there's more pressure in a final than it is a pop quiz. Or, or just a generic assignment. You know, maybe, the, and there's even more pressure possibly in a pop quiz than just your regular uh, assignment that's on the syllabus, right? So there's a, I guess there's clutch moments for all of us. And in athletics, there's no different. You know, no matter how much I, you know, I, I position myself as a number guy. And I do. Oftentimes, you know, people who are really, really into stats and numbers and analytics, even far more than myself, they'll be like, there's no different. There's no difference between two points in the second quarter than two, two points in the second quarter when you're up seven then two points in the second quarter when you're down one. And obviously we know that I get the concept and the overall idea, right, that all the points matter, but we don't live, we're not robots, right? There are absolutely, the as the game winds down or if you're trailing and the, the stakes are high, there's a, it's going to be more pressure involved. As a human, we understand this. Although, you know, as we try to, look at things from 
you know, a completely analytical position, we understand that there are things that will fall through the cracks. And that is one of them. You can't quantify pressure. There's no way to value properly players who can maintain a certain amount of focus, body control, um, and discipline, you know, in the waning moments of a big game. And it's not just offensively as well. There are guys who panic defensively and they'll commit fouls in bad situations. But we don't, we don't, we don't try to take away that person's clutchiness by silly fouls. You know, we don't, we don't try to raise the awareness of someone's clutchiness if they make a big time stop, get a, you know, take a charge or, um, you know, force an extra pass or even make a great pass. We don't attribute, oh man, that was a clutch play to someone making an assist or taking a charge or making a block. It's only if you miss a shot or if you commit a turnover. And there lies the problem. We use this idea, this tired narrative of clutch and clutch genes so much. And personally, I, like I started this quarter saying, I don't know how and when it started. But if you pressed me on this, the only place that I can, the only place where I see like a rise in this entire idea is through Skip Bayless, right? And I'm not one of the guys who blames Skip Bayless for everything. You know, some people blame the millennials for every single ill that exists in society. And a lot of people blame Stephen A. or Skip Bayless for all that's wrong in sports. And I'm not one of those people. I'm not necessarily their biggest fans, even though I understand and appreciate what they do. You know, they, they provide sports content for a lot of fans. And a lot of fans like that stuff, man. And I'm not going to knock them. You know, I like Dan Levertard, and a lot of people can't stand that. You know, I'm not going to put my sensibilities on you because I can't stand when people try to apply their sensibilities to me. You know, if you like it, I love it, man. Go ahead, do your thing. However, this is a pet peeve of mine, and I can't, I can't trace, right, the origin of this whole uh, fanatical obsession with clutchness and clutch play and clutch gene, right? Every time I try to trace it back, it always stems from Skip Bayless. Now, I'm not saying he was the first person to talk about someone being clutch, but I think he he propelled it to a, a high level. You guys remember, he used to knock LeBron. And this is something that, in my opinion, kind of disqualifies the entire argument about clutch play. And I'll get to this in a, in a moment. I want to just to put a pin in LeBron. But also, you remember... it. It seems like yesterday, but I guess at this point, it's probably been six, six, seven years ago when Tim Tebow took over. And although Tim Tebow was not a good quarterback, and again, this is coming from someone who enjoys and loves Tim Tebow. I like Tim Tebow, right? But Tim Tebow will play like trash for three and a half quarters and then make us a, uh, a series of plays in the fourth quarter. And we would, many of us, right, led by Skip Bayless, would make this this huge, you know, declaration of, oh, man, Tim Tebow is just clutch. And reports would come out of Denver like, man, this guy is awful at practice. He doesn't get the plays. And we would excuse so much of it because he would make a few passes at the end of the fourth quarter and finished, I think it was like 8-8, eight and eight. <laughs> you know, the one year in Denver. And he had the huge pass against Pittsburgh, right, without their starting safety, Ryan Clark, because of, you know, the altitude. All these things happen in one moment and we celebrated Tim Tebow for being bad and to the vast majority of the game 
but because we weigh the last few moments, the last few minutes of basketball, football, games, than we do the entirety of them. We were ready, to, many of us, I should say, were ready to reward and anoint Tim Tebow, this great quarterback, when it was clear he wasn't. Now back to LeBron. One of the things that bothers me most about clutchness is the relative, how relatively easy it is to make yourself sound stupid. You know what I mean? We are not that far removed. And it sounds crazy now because of how distance, right? When you're in something and you're in the midst of something, I don't know if everyone knows how crazy things are, the atmosphere, the ecosystem. But once you take a few steps back, you can look. And we have the benefit of time of just observing what was going on just recently. We are years removed and not a lot, not a lot of years removed from people questioning whether LeBron James was clutch. I feel like that disqualifies the entire argument. And it wasn't just a few people. And here's the beautiful thing, right? Because it sounds so crazy now, in hindsight, the people who were the loudest beating that drum, they don't ever talk about it. They want you to forget. I, I own up to my mistakes. You know, when I, when I said I didn't think Bradley Beal was going to be a good NBA player, I had to eat that crow. And I had to eat that crow probably for as long as I talk about the NBA. And the people who know me have no problem, you know, bringing that in my face. And I deserve that, right? I was loud. In my, you know, incorrect position on Bill, you know, but I own it. There are a lot of people who run around, call themselves, quote unquote, experts who about eight years ago were telling you that LeBron James wasn't clutch. I'm not making this up. LeBron James, mind you, statistically speaking, is one of the most clutch players in basketball history. I will repeat LeBron James, historically speaking. There's data to support this evidence is one of the most clutch players in the NBA's history. I remember having disagreements online with two guys in particular, and I'm not going, I'm not going to add them. I'm not going to, you know what I'm saying? I'm not going to name any names, but they're respective. They've both been on this show and we were going back and forth. And I, and I was saying, yo, LeBron James has as many playoff game winners as, as Michael Jordan. Right. You hear that. And because of how each player has been covered, the reaction was, oh, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. I don't want to hear that. Right. So the beautiful thing about living in the information age, we're all just a click away from evidence. So I knew that they were going to dismiss that because that's how we've been positioned to think at that point in time. Right. That LeBron can't make plays. He's not big in clutch moments and Michael Jordan has been this, you know, this African God, man. He, he never misses a shot. He never turns the ball over. He's never made a mistake. He never cheated on his taxes. He never jaywalked. You know what I'm saying? He never passed gas the whole nine. So you send a click, a click an article, right? Copied and pasted the link and send it back out to these guys. Like, nah, Joe, look, this is from a respected, uh, news organization, respected, uh, writer who had all of the data in the article, right? Didn't take me long to find it. And of course, the the reaction to that was, 
oh man, whatever. I don't care what they say. I don't care what the number says. LeBron's not as clutch or whatever, whatever as Jordan. I don't know. I don't know how people can live in the world where they just make up their own facts. You know, actually, not to get off off track, but considering current events, actually, I do see how people can do it, right? Because it happens all the time. You know, like I said, I'm a number guy. And a lot of people dismiss numbers and data and stats guys for the eyeball test. You know what I mean? And to those people who all who pride themselves and not ever following numbers. I mean, bro, how is it that you you know who wins games? <laughs> you feel me? Like if you don't keep track of numbers, you don't keep track of the score. And if you don't keep track of the score, you have no idea who wins. So miss that whole the whole concept. Like I get it. Some people and myself, I can throw myself in this at times. We can carry it away with stats and metrics. There's there's also a feel. There's also uh, a very uh, a part of basketball that cannot be quantified. And, and pressure and clutch, what we're talking about, is absolutely one of them. But don't get on this whole high horse of you you're being proud of not following numbers and all this other stuff, man. Because you sound stupid, Joe. For real. As oftentimes. People on the other side sound like complete nerds, man. It's a balance. You got to take both. But in any event, the idea of clutch and lack of clutch play resulted in us thinking that LeBron James, one of the most clutch players in basketball, and not even talking about just in made baskets, right? Made playoff game-winning baskets. But imagine all the game-winning assists that LeBron James has had as well. We ridiculed LeBron for passing the ball to guys like Wally Zerbiak, Danielle Marshall, right, uh, Ray Allen, uh, Daniel Gibson, guys who were the only reason they're in the league, Kyle Korver. The only reason these guys are in the league is because they can make open shots. LeBron James would get them wide open corner threes before the corner three was the all the rave in the NBA. And we would criticize him for that. If they didn't make the shot. And often, oftentimes when they did make the shot, we were criticizing. Think about the, the game six against San Antonio in the NBA finals, right? The Miami Heat start the fourth quarter down like 11 to 12 points. LeBron James with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh on the bench gets that team to within three points at the end of the quarter, right? He hit back-to-back consecutive three-point shots late in the fourth quarter to get it to a one-possession game. But all we talk about is him missing a three and turning the ball over after cutting the lead to three points. And then everybody's like, oh, well, LeBron, you know, he needed Ray Allen to win his second NBA championship. You know what I'm saying? Like, imagine living like that. And then, and then the Ray Allen shot sends the game to overtime. We don't talk about all the plays in overtime. That led to Miami winning. And we don't talk about game seven. Game seven in the NBA finals. The most, like, the highest game in terms of pressure. You know what I mean? There is no game with a heightened sense of pressure than a game seven NBA finals. No one ever talks about who dominated, who hit all the big shots in game seven in the NBA finals against the Spurs. The only thing people talk about is, oh, man, that one Ray Allen shot that sent the game to overtime. You see how we, so the idea of clutch will have, will taint 
your opinion on everything. You've been told for years that LeBron James isn't clutch. So the fact that he was able to get to, to basically eliminate an 11-point lead with one quarter to go with the second and third best players not playing and then dominate overtime and then dominate the game seven to win an NBA championship, all that is erased. The only thing people talk about is the one shot, the one shot somebody other than LeBron hit without his help. That's crazy talk. And it's amplified because we've, I've seen as a Knicks fan, when we first traded for Carmelo, everyone was talking about how many big shots Carmelo hits. Right? Remember that talk? Oh, the Knicks are finally getting a big shot maker. Somebody who can hit big shots in the playoffs. How many big shots did Carmelo Anthony hit while he was playing in New York? I'll answer that question. None. How many shots did Carmelo Anthony take while he was in New York? God knows the answer to that. You feel me? He took, he took, he shot us out of big time shots because that's all he did. But he had the reputation of being a clutch player. How? I had, maybe because he hit a shot in college because he won a, a NCAA championship. And I'm going to make some of y'all mad now because I'm going to talk about Kobe. Kobe has the reputation of being a clutch player. But when you look at it, and I know all y'all don't believe in numbers, and we've talked about this ad nauseum. But when you look at the numbers, the data, the facts to support an argument, Kobe Bryant's numbers in game-winning or quote-unquote clutch situations are less than average. So we have been carrying this trope of this, you got to hit the big shot and you got to be clutch. And if you don't hit this shot, you're not big and you're not big time and you don't have the clutch gene and all these silly little, you know, nicknames and topic talking points and discussions. We've been doing this now for close to a decade, if not more. And no one knows what the hell they're talking about. And in part two of this conversation, right, quarter number two, we're going to talk specifically how it relates to an NBA player and all-star this season, Bradley Beal, because now the pariahs are coming for him. And again, I this is coming from somebody who was not, uh, I don't want to say fan, but someone who was not a believer in Bradley Beal. But now the thing is getting crazy because too many times what we define as clutch is a guy hitting a shot that is a bad shot. When the game is on the line, if you pass the ball, oh, you're not clutch. If you if you get a lay-in or a backdoor cut, oh, well, you know what? You just had a lay-in. You know what I mean? Like, we we if you hit an impossible fall-away, fade-away shot that's really bad instead of passing it to the wide-open player underneath the hoop, oh, well, that, then you're, you got the clutch gene, you know? You're the Batman of the roster. And before we get to, sec to the second quarter, I want to leave you with this. I remember at the height of this kind of anti-LeBron, uh, you got to be clutch. You're not the guy on the team. One of my buddies, close friend of mine, was coaching youth basketball. And, you know, I'm, I'm a producer at the, at the time and, and, you know, talk about sports all the time. And he was like, Armand, imagine trying to coach children in this atmosphere. Like imagine trying to tell kids like passing to the wide open player does not mean that you're less than, does not mean that you're weak, does not mean that you're not clutch. And everybody's like, nah, well, that's what they say about LeBron. Imagine telling children that one of the three to five best basketball players ever, right, is somehow less 
of a basketball player because he passes and explaining that to children all the while trying to teach them how to play basketball. It's crazy. Absolutely insane. So that's the reason why I'm completely off this clutch bandwagon, this clutch narrative. But we're going to dive deeper into this topic, specifically how it relates to Washington Wizards all-star guard Bradley Bill with my guest this week, contributor for the truth about it.net, Troy Halliburton. He's one of the best who covers the Wizards, man. I really enjoy his recaps. Uh, you can check his workout at truthaboutit.net, and you can follow him on Twitter at Troy Halliburton. That's H-A-L-I-B-U-R. Troy Halliburton, man. Troy, glad and happy and excited to have you on the quarterly report for the first time, bro. I'm doing all right, man. I'm so glad that you had me on. Uh, it's my first podcast appearance of uh, of, the, of this season, so you know this is like you know kind of kind of popping a little bit of a cherry there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. You know, and with the playoffs right around the corner, definitely look forward to having you on more frequently to break down playoff matchups and everything like that. We'll talk about the playoffs in a little bit, but first, you know, in the first quarter, I was talking about clutch and clutch play and the narrative of the clutch gene and how. That's tiresome for me to the point where, you know, I, I really don't even value much of the, the, the talking points that come along with it. But locally, this has been a discussion that has kind of uh, engulfed Wizards Twitter, if you will. You know, Brad Bradley Bill and his play down the stretch in these moments that we deem clutch. So my question to you is two prong. Number one, how much weight do you uh, put into the idea of a clutch player. And number two, why is it that you think Bill struggles so much in these moments that we deem clutch? Well, I, I actually, I put uh, a little bit of weight into the idea of clutchness. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the, the biggest thing, there's a misconception between, you know, just you taking like the, these, these stats, these clutch stats that everybody's throwing out now and right. use that as a determination to say that, oh, you know, that someone is unclutch. Because just as you mentioned with LeBron, I mean, this is – stats are, you know, the only part of the information that we can use to make decisions. And, you know, stats change because sample sizes grow and people grow as players like LeBron. He wasn't always clutch. But the stats show us now that over time, LeBron has been one of the more consistent clutch players in the NBA or through, throughout the history of the NBA. I mean, he's literally up there with Michael Jordan as far right. as like his, his in-game situation and closing, better, better than Kobe Bryant, who everyone on the eye test says is, you know, obviously way more clutch than LeBron James. But I think that, I mean, going to what, what we're talking about with Bill, I think that he's still growing as a player. And the stats don't lie. Right now, he is not clutch. Right. So, but I don't think that that is a as a determining uh, thing for you know he's an unclutch player and we can get get rid of him or not. It's, it's nothing like that. Like he's not playing well in the clutch right now. I don't think that anybody can refute the stats and with the eye test, honestly. But right. I think that there are some things that the Wizards could do to put him in a better position to you know make him a little bit more clutch. And I definitely think he'll grow as a player just, just in general anyway. Yeah, I agree with you as it pertains to Brad and, you know, his performance in the clutch. Uh, players, they evolve. You know what I mean? You're absolutely right. It's, it's part of evolution. You know, a guy has to grow into these roles oftentimes, you know. Um, and, and, but, but what I'm kind of pushing back on 
is the idea that because Brad doesn't hit these tough shots, because at the end of games, these sets that they run for Brad, you know, he holds the ball, allows the defense to set, and then he ends up having to dribble and take a tough, contested 18-19 footer. And they always, or I shouldn't say always, but oftentimes, it seems like that was the designed play. So because he misses shots that everyone misses, right, contested, fall away, 19-footers, that doesn't mean he's not clutch. It may mean that they need better sets to get uh, a higher efficient shot that will be able to be converted into two or three points. Exactly, exactly. I think that, I mean, Scott Brooks, um, you know, he gets a, I think that, you know, he, he gets a, a, a lot of flack for, you know, not being great with the X's and O's, but he has shown ability to draw up creative uh, with ATO after timeout plays. And I, I just I just think that um, he he's so old school with his mentality that he always is going to allow his star players to kind of do what they want at the end of the game because you know that's pretty much what happened when he was on the Houston Rockets. They you know they get the ball, they give it to Kim Olajuwon. He's on the bench, he's looking at that. He thinks that that's you know right. how it's supposed to be done. You know I think that for the Wizards to improve uh, in the clutch. I think that it all has to start with getting their most efficient player more involved in the play, and that's Otto Porter. Um, even if even if you want, even if you're Scott Brooks and you want Bill to take the last shot, it would still behoove them to at least have Otto Porter in the screen. Let Otto set the screen so that if, right. if, if if teams know that you know they have to respect him and you won't get as hard of a hedge from you know from Bill's defender. I just think that there are different things that he can do creatively as far as X's and O's wise to. Uh, to make sure that, you know, he's putting Bill in a better position to score. Once again, guys, I'm joined by Troy Halliburton. And when I say he knows the Wizards, I mean it. He's covered all but four of their home games this year. He knows the players. He knows the team inside and out. And he knows what he's talking about. So he's not just giving you generalities, right? Really specific Wizards discussion. Um, make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton. That's Troy, H-A-L-I-B-U-R. Um, he's a contributor for truthaboutit.net. And Troy, I kind of want to move now to John's return. It's it's obviously a huge story locally, but it's even become a, a, a large story nationally. Uh, and so much attention has been paid to the Wizards and their play without John. Uh, many people have even gone on to say that they feel the Wizards are better uh, without the multiple-time All-Star. And I know that sounds crazy, you know, to people who, uh, who watch the Wizards or who just just hearing that. But it's clear that this style of play best suits the majority of the Wizards. Um, so the idea that when, you know, a top 20 player is coming back and, you know, maybe I'm being loose even when I say top 20 as it comes to, as it pertains to John. I, I'm, I'm right there with you, even though right. uh, it, that, that my, my, my perception of that is, is changing over the course of this season, but that's a whole other podcast. But, right. <laughs> but John is coming back in the playoffs, like we said, right around the corner. So my question to you is, should John adjust to the Wizards? I mean, because he's smart. He sees what's going on, and he's a competitive guy. He wants to win. So should he adjust to the Wizards, or should the Wizards – adjust to the return of a multiple-time All-Star and a guy coming off of, uh, what, third-team All-NBA selection just a year ago. I don't think that there's a question that John needs to adjust his style of play to the way that they're currently playing. And I don't think that it's 
a style that he's unfamiliar with. I what the way that the Wizards are playing right now actually kind of reminds me of their first two original playoff runs, mm-hmm. and and John and John played exactly like that. You know his four, his his scoring averages in those playoff runs went down and his assists went up because right. you know they were just out there passing the ball and and in these and in these tight situations in the playoffs where everything slows down well, we got the guy who who can change direction better than anybody in the entire league he can literally control the outcomes of games much more than he can in the playoffs than he can in in the regular season and I've and we've already seen him play like that so it's not it's not a question in my mind as to as to how he's going to play when he comes back. And I think that, you know, everybody who who doesn't believe that, I think they're making much ado about nothing concerning the whole situation. Exactly. It's weird. You and I were talking about this earlier. Um, I don't know where the people who are on the radio and on television, where they, they live, where they hang at. But for me, everywhere I go, people are excited. People are talking about the Wizards and, the proof is in, you know, the television ratings and the increase in viewership. Um, so when people who have the platform talk about John, oftentimes it gives you like this lazy uh, analysis that you just hear regurgitated from places outside of the area. Um, John Wall's return is, you know, it's complex, it's layered because the team is playing so well now. And if things go right, We're talking about a team that literally could not just make it to the conference championship, but represent the Eastern Conference. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, you know, I think that um, when you when you speak of the way that sports are discussed in this area, I mean, you grew up here. I mean, this is this is I mean, D.C. is is a glutton for misery. So (laughs) I mean, just as just as a sports town in general. So right. it's 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 like it's second nature that you know as soon as you know some just a little bit of negative. I mean we we as DC sports fans we've been waiting for this negative moment to happen. Like we've been right. we, we we basically spoke it into existence, <laughs> and instead of you know putting the fire out, we fanned the fire until it's gotten completely out of control. But I mean this is the same thing we do with the same thing that's going on with all the Kirk Cousins talk today. It's the same thing people are going to do in September when the Nationals. Season gets down to the end, and it's the same conversation we'll have surrounding the Capitals. I mean, but the, our four, four professional sports franchises haven't given us much optimism to even look forward to. So, I mean, this is this is just a product of the environment. I'm not surprised at what's going on, but you know, it just it just is what it is at yep. this point. Once again, guys, I'm joined by Troy Halliburton. He's a contributor for TruthAboutIt.net, so make sure you check him out. He's been to all but four of the Wizards home games. He covers and recaps each game for the website. So check out his uh, recaps and his pieces just on the Wizards itself. Really good. Dope writer, man. Been a fan for a while now. Um, So, Troy, I'm curious with the playoffs coming in the Eastern Conference. It's so fluid. Man, you have one bad stretch, like two losses in a row. You could drop from three to six. Uh, But as things stands right now, at the time of this recording, the Wizards would be facing Cleveland in the first round of the playoffs. So, um, again, there's still a lot of basketball left. One win can change that. And, you know, there's a whole lot of teams kind of vying for these same spots. So, with that being said, which matchups do you think are most ideal for the Wizards? If you were to, you know, kind of rank each team, 
which matchups should Wizards fans kind of hope for as the playoffs loom? Well, I think the best possible matchup for the Wizards would be to play the Indiana Pacers if they could somehow end up with Indiana in the 4-5 right there. I think that's the best possible matchup for them. Because, number one, uh, Victor Oladipo is their best player. And while he gained a little bit of experience last year in Oklahoma City in the playoffs, you know, he, he was a, in a completely different role as a secondary player to uh, Russell Westbrook. And, you know, as we've seen over over, over time, like, it, it takes players a, a little while to, you know, kind of get into a playoff groove. And, right. you know, I, I just think that the Wizards match up well with them. You know, as far as, you know, Oladipo and Bill with that matchup and John being able to, you know, kind of dominate their point guard situation. Um, I, they, they have an advantage with Miles Turner down low on Gortat. But I think that uh, we'll see a lot more small ball lineups from the Wizards in the, uh, in the playoffs. So I'm not too really much concerned about that. But I think that, yeah, Indiana would be the best matchup. Uh, I mean, but really that's just a process of elimination. These, uh, right. you know, the other teams, those, are, those matchups are actually – you know, I think one of the worst matchups that the Wizards could possibly see would be if uh, the Sixers were to somehow climb up. And I'm with you 100% on that. I would want no parts of the Philadelphia 76ers. I mean, they, they, they look like a scary team because, honestly, uh, I mean, what they say about you know, the playoffs, the, the teams with the best players usually win these series. I mean, I mean, Joel Embiid looks like a transcendent NBA player, and he very well could be the best player on the court in a series between uh, Philadelphia and Washington. And, you know, with the way they've constructed their team, uh, you know, with, the, with a lot of shooters around him and, and Bede being, being able to do anything he wants on the court and then Simmons being able to quarterback the situation regardless of him being able to shoot or not, you know, that, that team is very dangerous. So I think that I would not want to play Philadelphia. I would, uh, you know, I'd actually put Cleveland behind Indiana in the mm. matchup because I think that, you know, there's – there, there's there's some bad mojo going on with their team right now, right? And and I think that if LeBron, if they were to get knocked out of the uh, Eastern Conference playoffs and not make it to the finals again, I think that they, they you'd have a better chance of it happening earlier than yeah. later in the in the playoffs. You know, so I think that there, there's there's a lot of discourse going on around Cleveland right now, and Kevin Love's not back. He'll still have to get reacclimated. Where the Wizards could kind of just you know sneak up on them, get get you know get them out of there really quickly. Right. So I think that that is a is a possibility of something that could happen. And then uh, with the, the last team uh, that they could possibly face is Milwaukee. You know, I I, I like my chances with Milwaukee too. Uh, right. Just because Giannis Giannis is a good player and you know he's transcendent. I'm not sure he's the best player on the, on the, on the court in a series against uh, the Wizards. Um, I mean, just because, I mean, he, he can't shoot the basketball at all, and that really matters in the playoffs when you can, you know, pretty much load up your whole defense on one side of the court for him and, and not allow him to, you know, get that dribble penetration that he gets on the regular season. I think, yeah, so if I had to rank the opponents, I would I would go, oh, as far as most favorable, I would go uh, the Pacers are the most favorable. Cleveland would be the second most favorable. Uh, the Bucks would be the third most favorable, and uh, the Sixers would be my least most favorable matchup for the Wizards to make. That's interesting. Um, I agree with you on Philadelphia and Indiana, I guess, at the ends of the spectrum in terms of how confident I would be if I'm a Wizards fan. But hearing you have Cleveland so high and considering how 
uh, vulnerable it seems that Cleveland is this year. I want to ask you this one question before we get out of here. Once again, guys, I'm joined by Troy Halliburton, contributor for truthaboutit.net. So imagine, I guess it's like a playoff confidence meter, if you will. Zero meaning you have absolutely no confidence in this. Ten meaning you're so confident that you bet your house and every dollar that you own, right? How confident are you that the Wizards will finally break DC Sports Curse and get a team to their final four, if you will, or the, that the Wizards will make it to the Eastern Conference Championship. How confident on a scale of zero to 10 are you that the Wizards get to the Eastern Conference Finals? I think, so this is, this is where I would be confident. I would go seven, seven, seven and a half, getting to the Conference Finals, just because I think if they can get past their first round matchup, you know, if they can, I like their matchup with three of those teams, really. Right. They can get past their first round matchup. I really like the matchup with Toronto. Mm. So in the, in, in the second round, and it looks like they're going to run away with this uh, number one seed because Boston seems that they're just falling apart. Right. You know, injuries left and right. So I think that if they can get in that four or five, and they can get past Toronto, well, I mean they'll play Toronto. Obviously, I think they have a good chance of getting past Toronto. So I'll get I'll go seven and a half on the confidence meter that they could make the Eastern Conference Finals this year. Well, there you have it, Wizards fans. There's, there's reason for optimism. I know we said this last year, but I, I genuinely I agree with Troy, man. Like the, the, the path to the Eastern Conference Championship, it doesn't seem like it's going to be that hard for them. Just avoid Philadelphia. I agree wholeheartedly on that. You don't want any problems with the 76ers. But once again, that's Troy Halliburton. He is a contributor for truthaboutit.net. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton. That's Troy, H-A-L-I-B-U-R. Man, he has really dope recaps of each game. He's covered all but four of the Wizards' home games this year. Check out the recaps. Check out his also his articles on the team. Really dope stuff. Really fun follow. Troy, man, thank you so much for joining me this week on the Quarterly Report, and I look forward to having you on again once uh, the playoffs uh, gear up. Armand, man, I greatly appreciate it, man. This is your your hosting skills are on a complete value. This is the type of efficiency that we need to work to run uh, in, their, in their clutch game situations. <laughs> my man, my man. I guess I'm the auto pointer of this joint, huh? You guys heard the horn, so you know what that means. That means it's halftime. And before we get to halftime, make sure you follow the show on Twitter. We're at quarterly Q U A R T E R L E E show. Email us your questions, your thoughts, any topics that you want to hear me talk about, any topics that you disagree with me with, email the show at quarterlyreport at gmail.com. Again, that's quarterly spelled Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E. And follow the show and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. All you got to do is click on the app, search Quarterly Report. You see the icon with my face on the coin. Click and subscribe. And while you're at it, tell your friends, your family, you know, everybody you're cool with, your co-workers to listen to the show and rate and review the show. Let me let the world know what you think of the show. I greatly appreciate it. All right. So for halftime this week, man, I got to tell you, I like to think that I got a pretty good pulse on what is popular, what people like, what people talk about as it pertains to television, you know. But from time to time, you know, there's a hard dose of reality that will smack me in my face and let me know I have no clue what interests the American public. Case in point, this past Sunday, O.J. Simpson's ass was once again on my television. 
And I got to tell y'all, man, like I thought after, you know, the FX series, the people versus OJ Simpson. And then right after that, it was the ESPN 30 for 30, which lasted like five weeks. I was like, okay, we have and both of those shows were dope. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed both of them, but they covered everything. I was like, what else could anyone, anyone possibly want from OJ Simpson or anything revolving that case, right? But here, that was my foolishness, right? Because Sunday, Fox brought OJ's ass back on TV. This is an interview from like 20 years ago or something. And it was like trending. Everybody was tweeting about it, talking about it. And I'm like, we can't still be fascinated about this dude. Of course his ass killed those people, man. And what are we talking about? But it got me thinking. What other unsolved, quote unquote, unsolved mysteries could television networks bring out to get America fascinated on finally, again, in quotation marks, finally answering these unsolved mysteries. And I got a pretty good idea of what could be coming around the corner. Take a listen. From Fox and the creators of The OJ Confession, we unlock one of the greatest mysteries of all time, the disappearance of Amelia Earhart from someone who was there. What happened to Amelia? Man, she died. That's what happened to her in that plane crash. Everybody know that. From the people who gave you the Amelia Earhart confession, plus Fox, now have the answer for one of the biggest controversies in sports history. Did Tim Donahue actually throw the Western Conference Finals between the Lakers and the Kings? Did I throw the Western Conference Finals in 2002? <laughs> oh, hell yeah, I did that. You ain't read my book? From Fox in the minds who gave you the Tim Donahue confession present closure to one of the greatest tragedies of all time. Just what happened the night the Titanic sank? Straight from the source. Iceberg, did you really sink the Titanic? Man, what's going on when Fox talk about did OJ confess? Like, hell yeah, he did that joint, man. Like, come on, man. Are we still doing this? Like, I was looking at the timeline. And I didn't watch that mess. Like I said, man, I'm OJ'd out. But people were like, hey, man, OJ, he sounds guilty as hell. I'm like, bro, you damn right he guilty as hell. It's 2018, Slim. Hey, we can't still be on this. Did OJ kill? OJ may not have done it alone, right? But... I don't even feel like getting into that. OJ's ass knows what happened to those two people way back when in 94, man. And I'm so, like, why, why are we still on this? Why are we acting surprised? Let OJ's old crusty ass go somewhere, man. Give it his brother attention. All right, man, we're going to keep the show moving. That was halftime. But, guys, we got two quarters left, starting with, in my opinion, the best sporting days in the entire sports calendar. We're actually right in the middle of it, and that's going to be my third topic this week. Third. Without a doubt, the best days of the sports calendar year are the first four days of the NCAA tournament. And I'm not talking about the fake-ass playing days, right? I'm talking about Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the first four days of the tournament, the real tournament. It doesn't get better than that. And this is coming from somebody who doesn't even like college basketball. I enjoy the tournament, right? And I'm watching it because in this day and age where, you know, so many people have ADHD and like attention spans are short, 
college basketball in the NCAA tournament. So on four different channels, and there's action back to back to back to back. It's nothing better than that. And then you add in going to a bar, chilling in your house, taking off work, whatever the case may be. These first four days are amazing. And if you're listening to this on Thursday, you know, the day the show releases, man, hopefully you can find some time to check me out in the midst of enjoying the first day of the tournament. But part of what makes the tournament so special, obviously, are the brackets, right? We all love filling out brackets. I haven't done a bracket in years, okay? But everybody has multiple brackets, all these different websites, you know, playing in the bracket challenge. Your work may have one, a pool where you can win some money, the whole nine yards, man. Part of the allure of March Madness of the college NCAA tournament are the brackets. And I remember, man, Probably like a little over a decade ago now, I'm, I'm at, a, at my old shop, man, producing the show. And I'm not saying this was the first time it has ever been done, but it was the first time it crossed my eyes. And Deadspin, I believe it was, they had like a, a bracket style, but it was like the best television shows of all time or something along those lines, right? But it was done in a bracket style. And again, I'm not saying that they created it, but it was the first time I had saw it. I had seen something like that. And I remember, I was like, yo, that's super creative, man. Because, again, everybody, whether you like college basketball or not, there are people who have no idea, who couldn't name five college basketball players, but who have filled out more than five brackets. Because, again, that's part of the pool. That's part of the allure, right? So why not take that, you know, that dynamic of having a bracket and having a bunch of options and then breaking it down, you know? I thought it was genius. And again, not saying that's been created it, not saying it the first time it ever happened was 11 or 12 years ago. It was just the first time that I had seen it. And I was like, yo, man, that is super dope. And it stuck out to me, obviously, all these years later. But as is the case with everything nowadays, Slim, we OD'd on the damn brackets. So this is my plea. This is a this is going to be a short quarter. And really, it's just a therapeutic session for me, man. I just got to get this off my chest. Yo, we got to stop. We got to come up with another way. Another way, another fun, creative, you know, off-the-cusp way of making decisions or getting people to click on your links or starting up your website, a blog, or maybe even a podcast, right? Whatever the case may be. Stop sending me. Stop over flooding me, man, with these damn brackets. In the last five days, I kid you not, I'm not sizing. I have seen an online bracket for the best Jay-Z songs. I have seen an online bracket for the best Kanye West songs. I have seen an online bracket for the best TV shows for since the year 2000. I have seen an online bracket for the most annoying sports figures in the world today. I, I'm like, Slim, we do this every year, and now it's just growing. Like, where, where is it going to end? Your favorite fruit? Favorite breakfast? Slim, there's like a favorite breakfast tournament bracket. I'm like, bro, y'all don't know when to stop. Yeah, we, we, and I'm not saying y'all, because, you know, I'm part of it as well. A few years ago, I believe it was the ringer. They had like a wire style tournament, right? In brackets, like your favorite character, the best character from the wire. And y'all know I ate that mess up, man. That's a weak spot for me. Give me anything with the wire. I'm all in. So yeah, I got, I 
right, am, am as culpable as anyone else in feeding this frenzy. But damn it, I'm going to make a stand. Stop it, Joe. Stop it, man. You could come up with another creative way. Look at all the creativity that just bounces through your everyday interactions with people. We are at this state, this time and place, right? Of human civilization. We are the most creative people who have ever existed. Stop reusing the, the, the damn NCAA bracket. Let them live, Joe. It's time to put that thing down in the grave, man. I don't want to see, you know, uh, I love Outkast. I don't want to see next year best 64 Outkast songs ever in a bracket style. Nah, stop that mess, man. That's stupid. It's over. It's dead. You talking, you know, jump the shark. That damn thing, jump the shark, man. And then Jaws ate that motherfucker, man. It's over, Joe. It's like, stop. And you know what made me even more upset? If you're going to do a bracket, and I can't honestly, you know, I understand if you're going to take on this task, it's got to be super difficult, man. You know, you want to rank the top 64 Kanye West songs, Jay-Z songs. I get it, man. That's difficult. But damn, man, make sure you got the best songs on there. I'm looking at my guy, and I'm not calling anybody out, man, because some of y'all may listen to this and be cool with some people. This ain't, this is not hate or negative energy, none of that. Welcome to Heartbreak is one of my favorite Kanye West songs, Joe. It won't even, you mean to tell me not even one of the 64 best? You disqualified, Joe. It's, it's over. So again, this is more of a plea, right? This is more of an intervention than an actual quarter. We got to stop this, man. 2019 March Madness come around. Please, Joe, please don't have top 64, you know, Atlanta episodes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Don't give me top 64 uh, Denzel Washington movies. Nah, you want to rank a movie? If you want to rank episodes, I'm cool with that. You're going to have to give me, you're going to have to package it up. Give me a whole other different type of delivery. Because this NCAA tournament bracket style, and I get it, man. It's fun. It's fun to do brackets. Man, let college basketball have that. We done beat that horse to death 10 times over. We are better than this. Jay-Z top 64 songs. Man, god damn, Joe. <sighs> All right, man, I had to get that off my chest. Because, again, I get it. Brackets are fun. Stop killing a dead horse, man. That thing is dead in the ground stinking. Shout out to my guy, Julian Turner. <laughs> All right, man, we're going to keep the show moving. That was the third quarter. We have one quarter left. And, man, this quarter is going to be a lot, man, because it's focused solely on the NFL free agent frenzy, specifically the quarterbacks in the NFL. Let's go with our fourth topic this week. Fourth quarter. If you're Aaron Rodgers this past week, I don't know whether he is completely just pissed off. Like, did you see what this motherfucker just got? Or if he's licking his chops, just waiting for his contract to be up, like Clay Davis. Y'all know what I'm trying to say. Because free agency thus far in the NFL, especially as it relates to quarterbacks, everybody's lost their damn mind. Everybody. You know, y'all know, I say it oftentimes on the show. I am a capitalist through and through. Right. If you can earn it, if somebody's willing, willing to give it to you, God bless you. Take your money. Right. 
So I have no problem with Kirk Cousins signing a three-year fully guaranteed foot $28 million per fully guaranteed. I think that's amazing. Shout out to Kirk Cousins. Shout out to his agent. They played the game the correct way, right? Like I said, the beginning of the offseason, right? When Matthew Stafford signed his contract. Shout out to Matthew Stafford. He played the game 100% right. He got his money. Go back years ago to Joe Flacco. All these guys, man, I have no problem with them personally, right? When we're specifically talking about the player and their situation, God bless them. You feel me? I'm never going to be the person to stand in somebody's way to generate and earning money. However, as a capitalist, I always think the market will reset. The market will always reset itself whenever there's a, a wild, you know, um, frenzy going on. You know, the housing market, right? People are worried about, you know, uh, the student loan being a bubble that's going, you know, all these things. Anytime you see something, just people just going crazy. Before you jump in and be a part of the, the, the wave, just be like, you know what? Does this make sense? The market, it usually set, uh, stabilizes and it will reset. Sometimes that means it's going to be a, a nice big high rave to ride, right? You get on the crest and sometimes that means you're going to wipe out. I have been waiting for the NFL to be like, you know what? This whole ordeal in terms of the money we are paying quarterbacks is crazy. We're not that far removed from the analysis, the quote unquote experts who are saying, oh man, you can't win without a quarterback. You can't win without a quarterback, you know? And I, and I, as I've said on this show, that, that whole thought process was so stupid to me, you know, and I've given you guys examples in the past. I'm not going to, I'm not going to rehash all that stuff. Right. But the idea that you can't win without a quarterback just never made sense because there are so many examples of teams winning on all levels, including the Super Bowl without a quote unquote star quarterback. And then slowly but surely some of these guys that some of these quarterbacks who are very good, who are good, they they don't win. And the you know, their their fans, oftentimes members of the media and DC's case, radio hosts, the number way the number one way they'll defend these guys is like, hey, a quarterback can't just win you games by himself. So just just do that that mental exercise, right? In your head. If you're saying you can't win without a quarterback to justify paying these quarterbacks crazy amounts of money. But then at the same time, a quarterback that you love, you have your emotional connection with. If they don't win, you're like, hey, <laughs> it's not it's not all on him. Well, which one is it? Because I just saw the Philadelphia Eagles win, win the Super Bowl with Nick Foles. Nick Foles as the not just the starting quarterback. He was Super Bowl MVP. Nick Foles crushed Minnesota's defense in the NFC Championship game. Crushed them. This is Nick Foles we're talking about, okay? So don't tell me you need a quarterback to win when Nick Foles outplayed Tom Brady. You understand what I'm saying? And all of this kind of, at the entire quarterback market, it's crazy. Again, if you're Aaron Rodgers, man. <laughs> Y'all remember back in the day with T.O.? 
He was so excited to, to finally hit free agency back when he played in the Niners, but his agent, like, faxed the free agency papers like two minutes too late, and he got jammed up. If you Aaron Rodgers, man, I know he's practicing that right now, just making sure that there's no problem. There's no problem because when he wants his money, matter of fact, if you're the Packers, give him all the bread right now. Just bite the bullet now because what's going on is crazy. But it got me thinking, you know, because, again, I told you guys in the past, initially, I didn't think Kirk Cousins was going to be a good quarterback, period. And now after seeing him in Washington up close and seeing him produce and, and seeing him get better over the years, I think he's he can be anywhere between the 8th best quarterback to the 12th best quarterback. You know, average that out to 10th. And I broke it down for you guys. So I, I have a list of quarterbacks in the tiers, right? And hopefully this helps illustrate my overall point. That a lot of NFL teams are reaching. And they're reaching when they don't have to. You I, like if, the, if you don't learn from this past season, where it was Blake Bortles, Case Keenum, and Nick Foles were three-fourths of the starting quarterbacks in the NFL, you're never going to learn. You're never going to. Maybe the market won't reset when it comes to NFL quarterbacks. But I'm going to break down the tier system, right? The first tier, I don't think anybody would argue. The seven quarterbacks who, without question, are better than Kirk Cousins. This is not Kirk Cousins' hate. Again, I think he's around the 10th best quarterback in the league. But here are the quarterbacks who I think are, without question, there is no debate, that they're better than he is. Tom Brady, obviously. And this isn't necessarily in order. Like, these players who are better than him. Like they're just grouped off, you know? So we have Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Ben Roethlisberger, Drew Brees, Cam Newton, Carson Wentz. You know, those are seven quarterbacks who I don't know how anybody could fix it, even if you're the biggest diehard Washington fan. I don't know how you can say that Kirk Cousins is better than Cam Newton, MVP, consistently in the postseason, consistently winning 10 or more games, consistently beating top teams. Aaron Rodgers, obviously. Tom Brady, obviously. Russ, obviously. Wentz. Wentz is probably the MVP. Now, if you want to take issue with Carson Wentz because he's only played a year and a half or a little little over a year and a half. I suppose you could do that, but, you know, come on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Come on. We don't know how he's going to bounce back from the ACL tear. You're absolutely right. But even even with that, if you, meant to, if you mean to tell me that Minnesota could trade Kirk Cousins right now for Carson Wentz, even with him coming off of knee surgery, you don't think they would do it? They'd do it in a heartbeat. So those are the seven quarterbacks that right now I think we all understand are better than Kirk Cousins. No debate, no discussion. And then there are two quarterbacks who I think we all would like more than Kirk Cousins. Now they both have issues, mainly injuries. But I don't think that there is a uh, – I think if these two quarterbacks had a clean bill of health coming into next season, we all would choose them. They may not be better because of their currently, right, because they're both rehabbing. But I think we would we both see or we all see that both of these guys, we would want more than Kirk Cousins, if that makes sense. And that is Andrew Luck and Deshaun Watson. I don't know if Andrew Luck is ever going to play football again. 
everything seems to be going well in Indy, but that's the Colts. That that whole organization is nuts, clearly, right? So I don't know what's going on with Luck and his health, right? But if he had a clean bill of health coming into the next season, there is no doubt. There is no doubt. Everybody would be like, yeah, give me Andrew Luck over Kirk Cousins. The only issue is, is he ready? Is he physically ready? But I think after not playing in an entire year, we'll, we'll know coming into this upcoming season, right? Because if Andrew Luck doesn't play next year, okay, then, then the red flags are up. He may be done. But right now, even with injury, I would rather have Andrew Luck than Kirk Cousins. And Deshaun Watson, come on, man. <laughs> there ain't nothing else to say. Come on, bro. Like, like come on. Now, we want to see how he responds to his rehab as well. But Deshaun Watson checks off all the lists, all the boxes. I don't know how he was even passed up two years ago by the Browns and every other team who passed up on him. This guy's the real deal. We don't need to say anymore. So those are nine quarterbacks. Seven that we all understand are better than Kirk Cousins and two that we would rather have than Kirk Cousins. And then the third tier, I would say, are the is the tier that Kirk Cousins rests in with these other quarterbacks who are just as good. You can make the case for them being better than Cousins, but you also could make the equal same amount of case of Kirk Cousins being better than these guys, right? So they fall in the same tier. And these guys are Alex Smith, Phillip Rivers, and I want you put a pin on Matt Stafford and Matt Ryan. And that's where we're going to rest at now because with Stafford and what we will see with Matt Ryan next season, because he's a free agent after this upcoming season, with Stafford, a lot of the, the excuse coming out of Detroit on why you want to pay him this money was, well, what else are you going to do? What else are you going to do? Or I heard a lot of times, it's not Matt, Staff- Matt Stafford's fault that the Lions can't win. And to that, I say, yeah and no. Is Matthew Stafford the reason on the field why the Lions can only go to the playoffs once? No. Matthew Stafford is not going to lose your games. Matthew Stafford is very capable. Matthew Stafford, again, in any given year, he's on the same tier of Kirk Cousins. So there are times when Matthew Stafford will play, and I would be like, man, he's a top eight quarterback. And then there are times where he'll play, and you're like, uh, he's like 13 or 14, right? He kind of he fluctuates in that, that, that third tier, which can be really, really good. And to be even at its worst, he's still better than most. You know, so on the field, no, Matt Stafford doesn't cost you games, but Matthew Stafford, much like Kirk Cousins, in my opinion, are one of these quarterbacks who needs everything to be right. One of the things that annoyed me the most in the the media fascination with Kirk Cousins here in D.C. is that anytime Kirk Cousins played poorly or threw a big time interception or missed a big-time receiver in a big-time moment, and, the, and Washington would lose, it was always, yeah, Kirk Cousins threw this interception, but he doesn't have a running game. Yeah, Kirk Cousins can't beat multiple teams with a winning record, or he can only beat two teams in however many years with a winning record, but his defense is bad. So, again, do the mental exercise in your head. 
Because I heard it over and over again. Kirk Cousins didn't have a great defense, which to his credit, he did not. Kirk Cousins never had a great running attack while he was a starter in Washington, which to his credit, he did not. And last season, he didn't have elite weapons. He didn't have great receivers. His tight end, who's one of the better tight ends in the league, couldn't stay healthy. So you heard that. Oh, well, Kirk Cousins doesn't have great wideouts. But ask yourself this question again. Mental exercise. How many quarterbacks in the NFL have a great running game, a great defense, and great wide receivers? How many? Because the point is, unless you're a rookie, a Deshaun Watson, or on a rookie contract, I should say, Deshaun Watson, a Carson Wentz, Dak Prescott, none of these guys do. And the point is, these rookies on these rookie-scale contracts aren't asking for $28 million annually. It's a bargain that you have. It's a sacrifice. Once you get in this position and you want this money as an organization, as a front office, it's a, it's a pie chart. If you're going to devote 20-some-odd million dollars to one player, you're going to have to cut it somewhere else. So you don't hear Tom Brady talking about, hey, man, I don't have great receivers. They got... The Patriots bring out guys who I've never seen before in my life. And these guys all of a sudden turn out to be great receivers. When was the last time you heard Tom Brady say, hey, man, I need some great receivers? Never. <laughs> Gronk could go down. And Tom Brady, Aaron Hernandez, Rob Gronkowski have two totally separate incidents, right? And it doesn't matter. Tom Brady keeps on going. Aaron Rodgers was playing with, like, uh, oh, a receiver as a running back, and God knows some journeyman practice squad guy as a wide receiver, and they still got to the NFC Championship game a few years back. Does does anybody does anybody know who was the starting running back in Seattle last year? Anybody? You know, the Steelers have no defense to speak of, so. If you're a Kirk Cousins apologist, then you're like, hey, man, he didn't have a defense. He didn't have a running game. He didn't have a receiver. Well, what the hell? Who does? And that's my entire point. And you see it with Matt Stafford. Back to my point with Stafford. The Lions get in bed with Matthew Stafford, sign him up, and know on the play he's not going to lose you games, but he's not good enough in terms of the other top quarterbacks. He's not better than the other guys to carry a team. So if you sign Matthew Stafford to a long-term contract, you got to have all these other things in place. And under a, 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 a salary cap already implemented. Because if you don't, he's not good enough to overcompensate a lack of running game or a lack of defense. And in, in Detroit, they had a good defense. And they still won't. He's only been to one playoffs in his entire career. And you'll see it maybe within Atlanta. If they break the bank for Matt Ryan, Atlanta first started getting really, really good when they addressed their defense. And then they went to the Super Bowl with Kyle Shanahan, who say what you will about how he called the Super Bowl. Kyle Shanahan is an amazing offensive mind. So, yeah, Atlanta has great receivers. Atlanta has a, a dynamic dual-head running game. And now they have a good defense, but you're going to have to sacrifice something. And I'm not certain that Matt Ryan 
is good enough to overcome that. It's a reason why you look at recent teams to win Super Bowls outside of the Patriots. They're in Seattle, right? They weren't paying Russell Wilson a lot of money. Philadelphia, they're not paying Carson Wentz a lot of money, relatively speaking. Like you can win when you have a quarterback on little to no money because you can you can invest all over the place. And then in those years, you hope that quarterback develops. The same thing that happened with Tom Brady when he first started taking over. The same thing that happened with Ben Roethlisberger when he was young in his career. So again, at some point, I keep asking myself, and look, I'm not Lewis Riddick. I'm not one of these NFL experts who have front office knowledge, but it's clear as day to me. You spend all this money, and God bless Kirk. He got his money, and he's going to Minnesota. Minnesota is in a perfect position because, again, Minnesota has great receivers. Minnesota, they have Dalvin Cook. He didn't play last year much because he got hurt, but, hey, we all, we all saw him in Florida State. We know that boy could play, and we know about Minnesota's defense. So Kirk Cousins is going to a, going to a place where he is in his in the best potential for him to win. But look at the NFC. I was talking to my cousin about this earlier this week. If Aaron Rodgers is healthy, he's not winning that division. No disrespect to my Viking fans out there, but come on, let's be real. Look at the NFC South. Consistently, three teams get out of there. Two or three. NFC West. We all know about Seattle. We all know about the Rams who won the division last year. And then San Fran is coming to play. And then the NFC East, right, where you got the Eagles. And, you know, who knows what happens with Dallas. But the Eagles clearly aren't going away. It's not a guarantee that the Vikings make the playoffs. And ask yourself this, as someone who has seen Kirk Cousins and seen Kirk Cousins struggle in high-pressure moments, if the Vikings don't make the playoffs this year, after going to the NFC Championship game the year prior with Case Keenum, what do you think happens to Kirk Cousins in year two? They could have a good year. You could go 9-7. and seven. You may go 10-6 and six in the NFC and still not make the playoffs. We're not talking something outlandish here. But again, if you are talking about these third-tier quarterbacks, and you and you in your excuse routinely is well he doesn't have this he doesn't have that well that's part of the problem as to why you shouldn't pay and why you shouldn't break the bank for the Matthew Staffords for the Kirk Cousins the next year Atlanta fans to the Matt Ryans it doesn't add up all right guys man hopefully you enjoyed the show this week uh, I had a lot of fun once again I want to thank Troy Halliburton for his amazing Wizards coverage, we're going to hear from him far more frequently as the playoffs uh, ramp up. So excited about that. Also, remember, guys, if you want to get in contact with me, if you disagree with me and my take on Kirk Cousins and Matthew Stafford and Matt Ryan, please feel free. Debate me. Engage me. You can email, email the show at quarterlyreport at gmail.com. Again, email the show at quarterlyreport. That's Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E report at gmail.com you can tweet at me and the show at quarterly show on twitter that's quarterly again q-u-a-r-t-e-r-l-e-e show and make sure you subscribe and download and rate and review the show on apple podcast spotify we're at pod knife google play everywhere you go itunes anywhere you listen to podcast the show is available so make sure you leave a uh comment 
rate and review the show and let your friends and your family know about the podcast as well all right guys that's my time this week we'll see you back here next week with my cousin sadiq making his triumphant return to the show this has been the quarterly report <laughs>